Have you ever had a question for your pastor that is so off the wall that you're afraid to ask? Well, I'm here to ask for you. I'm your host, Hunter Brin, and this is Thousand Question Christian. Here's how it's going to work. Each week, I'm going to bring in two guest pastors, and I'm going to ask them questions in three different categories. One's going to be a stump the pastor kind of question. So imagine questions maybe atheists or agnostic might ask, or just general questions about Christianity. Two, we are going to dive into some of the weird stuff in the Bible, some of the weird Bible verses, some of the weird Bible stories, and just kind of dive into what those mean and why they're in the Bible. Three is going to be a space for me to ask for pastoral advice, where we will talk generally about subjects like prayer, dealing with grief, and aspects of faith. So this week on the show, we have... Hi, I'm Steve Summers. I'm the Director of Connectional Ministries for the Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church, which really just means I uh, help lead and guide and um, do whatever it takes to get the good news of Jesus Christ out in the annual conference, is accomplishing the vision of the conference, Hunter. Cool. And I'm Sarah Seelan, and I serve as a pastor at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Hanover County, Virginia. Well, cool. So just to get started, um, where did you guys go? Did you guys study to go to be pastors or clergy? Well, I studied, uh, I went to college at the University of the South, Suwannee, Tennessee, um, but I studied political science, uh, so I didn't necessarily study to become a pastor. Uh, I took religion classes there, um, but mostly I studied about politics, the presidency. Um, I thought I wanted to be a congressional staffer or maybe a congressperson someday. Um, but then I felt a call to ministry, um, just this whisper. Um, and so I decided to run away from it, and I did AmeriCorps for a couple years, and I taught in um, schools, taught children how to, how to read. So I was a reading tutor. Um, and then with the money that I earned from that, I went to seminary. So I went to seminary not with the intention of becoming a pastor, um, but I did not grow up a Christian, so I didn't have a lot of understanding of the Bible or I never went to Sunday school and things like that. So I thought, well, maybe in seminary I can learn something <laughs> about that. Um, and what I learned more was about my call to ministry um, and more about uh, what God was calling me to. And that's when I decided to say yes and become a clergy person. Okay. What about you, Steve? Oh, what a great story. Thanks, Hunter. Um, yeah, I, I graduated from the University of Richmond right here in Richmond a long time ago. And uh, double major, Sarah, I had political science too. One of my majors, the others was religion with the idea of going right off the seminary. Um, however, my advisor felt strongly that you should not go to seminary right after undergrad school. You should have some real life experience. Um, that and some economic constraints. Um, I decided to take a year away and get a job. Um, I was blessed in that job and ended up landing in it and finally owning a John Deere tractor dealership for 19 years. A lot of folks don't know that, but owned that, half of it, and ran it um, as the chief operating officer. And it was one of the largest ones in the country, so it was exciting, but it also afforded me the blessing of staying in ministry as a volunteer uh, at a couple churches on staff, uh, part-time, unpaid, and uh, but the call never left. So after 19 years, I finally 
God worked out a plan. That's all I can say. And I was able to uh, sell the place and go uh, to seminary then um, at, in my late 30s and never looked back and never regretted it for a moment. But that John Deere green is still in my blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, I'm going to kind of dive into what it takes to be a United Methodist pastor because we this, this podcast is through the Virginia United Methodist Conference, but hopefully we're reaching people who might not be Methodists. We can have Baptists, Catholics, anybody could be Presbyterians. listening. Presbyterians. So I know, what does it really take to become a UM pastor? Because I know, I like, I'm not a pastor. I'm not clergy at all. My wife is clergy, and I've kind of watched what she's gone through. But what, what kind of prerequisites do you have to have to become a United Methodist pastor? Well, I think one of the things uh, we have to define in the Methodist church, we define what a pastor is. So I am what's called an elder. And an elder is a person who's set apart for ministry and ordained by the bishop. And to be an elder, you do need to go to seminary, um, mo- mostly. Um, we also have licensed local pastors, and those are folks who are licensed to preach and teach and be pastors in a local individual church, sometimes a, a church that's connected with another church called a circuit. Um, and those folks don't necessarily have to have gone to seminary. They can be second career, as we call them, folks. And those folks um, tend to be um, uh, in, a, in one church for a, a certain amount of time, but they don't move around. They do get continuing education, though, and how they do that um, depends on what previous education they have. Uh, in some denominations, uh, it's not a denomination, sorry, in some conferences, um, there are people who are called deacons, and deacons are folks who um, can sometimes serve um, as pastors, as associate pastors. Um, they don't usually, aren't the leader, like an elder in the church, um, but some, some deacons would say they're not pastors. <laughs> they are deacons, so it just depends on who you talk to about that. Um, but deacons are called to bridge the church and the world together. So they don't necessarily have to serve within a church. They can serve out in the community as nurses, licensed clinical social workers, all sorts of stuff like that. But then in the community, that pers- people may see them as pastors. Um, so the question is a little bit difficult to say, how do you become a United Methodist pastor? I would say first, the first thing you have to do is you have to have a call from God. Um, and how that call comes, it can be a whisper, it can be clear like it was for Steve, um, and then you set it on the shelf for a few years. But once you have that call from God, um, then you go to your pastor at your United Methodist Church, talk to him or her about it, and they will pray over you. And once your church endorses you and says, we hear that call too, we see some gifts in you, then they'll send you to the district superintendent and you go on up. But yes, you do need some education. It just depends on which path you choose to take. Okay. Would you like about to? but well so to kind of follow up from the time you feel your call to when you become an official ordained, let's say elder, just um, for the sake of this scenario, how much time typically is there for schooling? Like how long is seminary? I know there's like a process of going through boards and to be approved to be ordained how long does it typically take from the from the time of like you feeling your call and deciding that's what you want to do to when you're like a full-fledged elder and leading a church that's pretty um hunter that's pretty variable uh, i'd say the 
shortest time, and Sarah, help me here, um, but I would say the shortest time when you consider the requirement for a Masters of Divinity on a typical uh, elder, ordained elder track for ministry and an ordained deacon um, as well. Yeah, three years minimum if you go full-time to seminary, and then you go through an ordination credentialing process that's uh, uh, both complex and a very great blessing because you learn a lot about ministry, the, the skills of ministry, you form covenant relationships, um, you are evaluated in multiple ways, but in a positive way, um, and that would take a minimum of three years. So kind of the shortest time you can do it when you, if you already have an undergraduate degree would be uh, six years. Sometimes it takes upward 10, maybe even more than that. It just depends on how you navigate um, the system. And uh, if you work, go to school part-time, it would take longer. There's just so many variables, but six plus years, I would say. Sarah, does that sound about right to you? Uh, yes, except um, some conferences, the discipline changed a few years ago to oh, two years. That's right. For You're the right. residents, what we call the residency. Um, yes. My husband's a doctor, so that's the way I explained it to folks, mm-hmm. is once he had he graduated from medical school, he went into residency. So when we go into, after seminary, into the um, journey of becoming a pastor, we are appointed to churches and right. working in churches during that time. Mm-hmm. We just have supervisors over us. Right. And in Virginia, that's three years minimum, but in other conferences it, across the United States, it could be two years. Right. So it takes a lot to a lot be, of time. To be yeah. a pastor. A and like a lot of, okay. Well, cool. So thank you for appeasing my question <laughs> on uh, the process. Um, but let's get into the questions that we're going to talk about today. So yeah. the first one we're going to do our stump the pastor category, which is questions maybe an agnostic or an atheist or a skeptic might ask. And I've had this question as a Christian, but so the first one here is why did Jesus have to die? And that's a, that's a really heavy question, but. Well, I wanted to start today by telling anyone who is listening, who is in the journey, um, that this a podcast should not be quoted for official board of oh, yeah. ministry <laughs> papers or anything not. like that. Uh, no, a disclaimer. I, right. great. I believe Thank last you. episode we talked uh, heresy. Yeah. So, uh-huh. yes, uh, this is not a. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the things I've learned is that we do have different um, theologies that we have studied through the years mm-hmm. from, you know, famous people like Karl Barth, John Wesley, folks like that. And we know and believe a lot of those um, theologies, but also just my personal experience of being a pastor for so many years, of dealing with different types of folks who have asked these types of questions. Sometimes God has revealed things to me that are personal to me, and they become my personal theology. I still check with others to make sure they're reasonable and they make sense. But as we all know, it's kind of hard to put our finger on exactly who God is and how God acts, because we are not God. Um, But I would challenge you back with this question, because Jesus is not dead. Uh So if Jesus is alive and we don't worship a a dead God, um, then did Jesus have to die? Well, that question is, did Jesus' body have to leave this earth? So see, we can get kind of Mm -hmm. theological weirdness here, that's because, what this is all about. Right. Theological weirdness mm-hmm. is the name of this podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, because I believe that Jesus still lives, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus' body is no longer here on earth. It was ascended into heaven. Um, so 
did Jesus have to die? Um, I understand the meaning in that question is, um, is that Jesus, why did Jesus die? Right? Like, did it, did it have to happen? And, um, I don't know. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, that's one of the historic questions Mm -hmm. of the Christian faith. Um, and I think Sarah was so spot on by, by kind of echoing the question back and reframing it in context to, you know, Jesus is still alive. Mm-hmm. But we're also pretty clear that, that he did indeed die and uh, rose again. It wasn't like death. It was death. Mm-hmm. And he rose again. Now, for me, I can, you know, getting away from some of the, um, as one theologian put it, uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen right, the theological nuances and the many volumes that have been written theologically that would address your question from different tangents. For me, it comes down to one fundamental thing, and that, and that arises out of a theological word, um, fancy theological word called kenosis. 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 So you can use that at the dinner table tonight. I don't know, Sarah, help me. I can't spell that. K E N O S I S, I think. Everybody out there is like Googling it now. Yeah, there'll be be comments later. (laughs) Yeah, later. Later. Okay. What is he talking about? But that that means, as far as I remember from school, divine self emptying or self emptying. So, you know, the Bible talks about how God made God's self present in the person of Jesus Christ as a living, breathing human being, just like you and I, flesh and blood, that experienced pain, joy, his mother's comfort, struggles, everything that we can experience, he experienced across all of humanity. And when God emptied God's self to come to earth in the form of a baby, born of a mother, in that divine self-emptying, it's through that self-emptying where God experienced the fullness of even human death in a cold tomb. And yet there was something incredibly miraculous about the power of God defeating death in God's own self in Christ and being raised from the dead that, in the words of the Bible, defeats death itself in the power of the resurrection so that we may have eternal life. And we can't underestimate the power of that. Mm-hmm. But even more importantly is an abundant life in the here and now. So for me, the larger question is why didn't why did isn't why did Jesus have to die? But but what power can we find in a kenosis or a divine self-emptying in our theology? Number one. And number two, where are we called to a little kenosis? To humble ourselves and to serve and not be served, to to give of ourselves to our neighbor, mm-hmm. even when they're way different than us, um, even when our instincts are to make them the other. I'm starting to preach now. I'm sorry. You're fine. <laughs> no, you're fine. Also, I, you're, you bring up a really good point because when I was writing these questions and coming up with these questions, I never thought of it as like God experiencing what humans kind of experience right. through death and living and all that kind of stuff. But I guess my big question is, did it have to be like super, gru- like a gruesome, cruci- like, crucifixion could he just live till well see that was the culture of the time that was how the leaders punished people at the time and they punished people by crucifixion not just jesus but Mm -hmm. others as Mm -hmm. well and i think 
their thought process, if they had one, was that it would be a deterrent to, towards crime. Um, that uh, Jesus died on the cross because that was the culture of the time, and that was how the leaders um, used the crucifix, crucified crucifixion, uh, the crosses, if you will, to scare people into doing right or not doing wrong. How did that work for them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. We still sin. We yes, still fall short. No one's perfect. Um and so, you know, like I was just thinking recently, in politics, Virginia just became the first southern state to abolish the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how has that human justice worked throughout time? Has the death penalty stopped crime in Virginia? You know, what has it done? And so if you think about this, um, imagine if you pick someone on death row and said to him or her, I will take your place. Why would you do that? Why would you have that self-sacrificing love, especially if it was a complete stranger, Mm -hmm. right, so that Mm -hmm. they have more time? What would you want them to have more time for? Because eventually we're all going to die, right? Mm -hmm. But to repent, to grow, to live, to learn, uh, that's the kind of life that that Jesus taught us to have, to, to be saved, if you will, by Jesus, um, so that's what Jesus did for us, right? Is Jesus went on the cross. We're all going to die. Let's be mm-hmm. clear. We're all, the body will leave. But Jesus said, you know, because I live, you also will live. Mm. Amen. Interesting. Mm. Well, mm. I, I mean, I think that was what I was looking for. <laughs> Amen. Right. Um, so I feel let's, totally blessed. Thank you, Sarah. Well, so let's continue uh, yeah. from talking of the death of Jesus yes. to the death of unicorns. Mercy. All okay. right. Unicorns. Well, it's so weird. I like <laughs> doing research for this show. I've seen so many really weird things in the, right. in the Bible now. And I'm just like, I cannot wait to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so today we're going to talk about death of unicorns. And that is from Isaiah 34, two through eight. If right. you want to look it up and I'm going to just read like, uh, this is not a Bible. This is a children's book, but I made sure that it is correct i looked this up and it's correct according to the king james version yeah, of the bible yeah, right <laughs> well this is the children's version okay um so it is the lord is furious with all the nations and their armies so he will destroy them delivering them to slaughter the dead will be piled on top of mountains and the smell of death will come down from the rotting corpses as rivers of their blood flow downhill the sword of the lord is filled with blood. The unicorns will be slaughtered with them, and the land will be soaked with their blood and fat, the day of God's vengeance. Mm. So I like to think that if it's in the Bible, it has some sort of significance because in previous podcasts we've talked about how there's so much has happened in this time period that if it's, in my opinion, if it's in the Bible, it Mm. has some kind of reasoning. Right. So what do you guys think the reason for why this story would make it into the Bible? Well, first, again, don't quote me in the Board of Ordained Ministry, um, but I do believe in unicorns, uh, and not just, because of, not just <laughs> because of Harry Potter. Um, but I believe that there are things that exist outside of my personal experience. Um, and it does say in the King James Version, I looked, um, that about unicorns. Um, and I think that... Uh, why is this in the Bible? Um, I think this section of Isaiah is talking about what many prophets talk about, which is they have a good and a bad. 
They tell you about all the terrible things and scary things that could come up. And um, they also tell you all the good things that can come as well. And so I think that um, this part of this Isaiah is talking about what the people um, that Isaiah is talking to need to know is that God will take vengeance on, I think it's Edom Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But it also says just before that, that um, uh, God, I think I wrote it down here somewhere about Isaiah. Let me read the scripture. Isaiah 33, five through six says, the Lord is exalted. He lives on high, filling Zion with justice and righteousness. He will provide security during a lifetime, a source of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. Fear of the Lord will be Zion's treasure. So just before all of this death and destruction and swords and killing for those who don't believe, there is grace for those who do believe. Um, So I think the prophets paint a dark picture for us of what happens to those who disobey God and who are enemies to God. But then they also go back on the seesaw, if you will, to painting a bright picture of what is the grace of believing in God, Mm -hmm. um, of giving your life to to Mm. God. What do you think, Steve? As Steve's pulling out his unicorn (laughs) out of the garage. I should have worn a unicorn like or something today. <laughs> I almost had it. one of those like things you put on your head and it's oh, got the horn on That would have been great. Head. I would have taken a picture of that. Um, well, the word itself, unicorn, in the King James Version, if you let me get technical just a minute, it, if you if you look at most scholars, they'll say that's a misinterpreted word. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that was, that was one of my questions oh, that we were going to talk about earlier, and we can talk about okay, it now. I okay. was just saying, like, because a lot of the Bible was transcribed right. and passed down from generation to generation, what are the likelihoods that it's not actually a, a literal unicorn, but it is just a... Don't dash my hopes. I yeah, know, I'm I sorry, hope, I hope the unicorns are real, too. I think Well, they're also, the Bible says leviathans. Yes, that does. Yes, we, it t- does. we talked about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. so, you know, this particular word most scholars believe is uh, more like a, a, a single-horned animal. Um, they'll, I think one version, maybe New Revised Standard, calls it a wild ox instead of a unicorn. Um, even some scholars say it w- might have been an indigenous to that time a gazelle that was seen from an angle that would have looked like one horn. That sounds like a kind of interpretive stretch to me, but that's the kind of thing that can go around. The important thing, as Sarah articulated so well, is the kind of the message, not so much the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking about unicorns um, existing or not. I'm talking about the notion of grace. Uh, there's this wonderful tapestry um, woven of grace throughout the, the writings of God in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. Um, yeah, there's some uh, blood spilling and retribution <laughs> and war and all that you know terrible stuff in the Old Testament. But you know what? Not as bad as Jesus dying on a cross. Mm-hmm. Um, an instrument of pain when he didn't deserve a bit of it, never did mess up. Um, but grace still triumphs, and grace triumphs in a unique way in our understanding as Methodists, United Methodists, that grace is paramount over law and every other thing in the universe. There is always hope. And well, you see grows. that with all the prophets. I mean, it's yeah, not just yeah. death and destruction. It right. is also, they balance it always with, yeah. but here's the hope. Right. 
Right. Here's the good news of God who exists and God who creates yeah. and God who heals. Right. Um, so, and, and oh, I can't think of any prophet where there's not that. Exactly. Balance. That's the tapestry I'm talking about. Right. It's, it's all, all, it's everywhere except we get some uh, lens and we begin looking at one part of it and making it a vengeful, hateful God. And, um, you know, it's just our stuff. A lot of times we experience the faith through the lens of our own existence. But, yeah. you know, when somebody comes to me with that, I'm like, hey, it's good because Jesus has experienced all of it for mm-hmm. us. And that's so, why he is grace embodied. Well, so to kind of go on the lens aspect of it, you know, you hear about pastors who preach fire and brimstone right. and they would use this passage as like, if you don't follow God, your your bloody rotted corpse will be on. So what, what kind of, I guess my, I guess my question or a question I would imagine someone would have would be when do, when would it be not appropriate? I'm trying to think of the words. Mm-hmm. When would people begin to preach that God is, is eventual God and all of the terrible things that happen um, as like a way to scare people Mercy. into right. Well, I think there's a lot of our human history where that was the kind of preaching that was done. The fire and brimstone—that's where we get the name from. Um, I think that we have changed. At least me personally, um, when I preach, I always ask, "What is the good news? You know, where is God doing good in this?" Uh, we have a joke at our church that the answer to every good question is Jesus, right? So <laughs> we can always end with, "Well, Jesus yeah, lives." Right. Amen. Um, but I think that again, with other things we've said that fire and brimstone preaching doesn't really, you know, fix or, or fix all the problems. It doesn't allow for grace. It doesn't allow for us humans to be imperfect. It says it, it kind of borders on that Pharisee and Sadducee preaching, uh, that Jesus often talked about and talked against, which was that follow these rules and do this exactly right. And then you will be saved. Well, if we have we follow the rules exactly right, then we're in control, right? And that's a control issue that I have, right? If if I do everything perfect, then I should get the A plus. I'm in control of this. Um, but if we go on the side of grace, as Steve was talking about, uh, then we know that we can't do everything exactly perfect all the time. Mm. But we can be forgiven, and we can you know, um, hear the good news that Jesus Christ lives. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I once heard a pastor, I can't remember when, where, or or what the context was, but, and maybe I'm making it up in my head, but, uh, and dreamed it. But I remember hearing a pastor say that they were going to preach the H E double hockey sticks out of everyone in the room. Mm. And that really stuck to my bones. Um, cause I'm still processing that statement. It kind of haunts me because, and I'm not judging, but I'm just I'm I'm just processing that still because I've always thought that the proclamation of the Bible, God's word, what we call the good news, mm-hmm. is good news, um, and that means it's full of grace and love and picking the neighbor up out of the ditch in the Good Samaritan story and and all those pieces that are in the Bible that tear, tell a narrative of including and loving and engaging wherever someone is. And when we do that and people experience that, which is why I think I'm United Methodist because our, you know, we have a deep theology of grace um, and understanding of the good news. When we do that, people will, as Wesley alluded to, the father of Methodism, they would, they would gravitate towards social and personal holiness. 
the yeah. response to the good news. When is, we know better, we yeah. do better. Amen. And Thank that's you. from Oprah. <laughs> oh, okay, well, Oprah too. There you I go. I love bread. <laughs> can't, can't talk about Oprah without saying that. Amen. Um, well, cool. So I am going to transition us into our pastoral advice category. And this is just like if you had someone in your congregation who is struggling with something and they came into your office and sat down and said, look, I'm struggling with this. What kind of advice would you give? So today I want to ask, um, what advice would you give to someone who's having a really hard time actually reading their Bible, whether it be they all of the really big names and like trying to understand the narrative of what they're reading because like there are some times where it's like abraham was the son of somebody somebody so and so it's just like that's so dense because like there's times where i've been like i want to read my bible from cover to cover mm-hmm. and i get stuck in like leviticus no, numbers and leviticus <laughs> and all of the really like dense stuff right from that to I have a hard time committing to reading my Bible on a daily or even a weekly basis. What kind of advice would you give to people? Well, what I often say um, when someone tells me, you know, I have a hard time reading the Bible by myself, then I say, don't read it. The Bible wasn't meant to be read by ourselves. It's meant to be experienced and read in community. Um, That's why I think church is important. Um, you can have mm. Bible studies, you can listen to sermons, you could listen to podcasts nowadays in a pandemic. Hey. Um, but to just pick up the Bible and read it from Genesis to the end is not the intention um, that uh, the Bible is. It is our primary source for information and for you know our faith, but our traditions of the church, our experience um, with, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, my personal theological experiences, and I have found that the that I tried for years when I wasn't a Christian, I went to Barnes and Noble to that religious section and mm. picked up a Bible, and they always had some new fancy study Bible that was going to open the door to heaven for mm. me, mm. and it never happened. Um, but when it did happen for me was when I went to a local church, sat around there every Sunday for a few Sundays in a row, went to several different churches till I just found one that kind of made sense and fit. Um, and then I went and started talking to people there. And as I saw how they lived their Christian life, the Bible started to make more sense to yeah. me in that community. What do you think? Well, you know, as Methodist, United Methodist, Wesleyan, in tradition, uh, we like to call ourselves a people of the book. But the book affects people through different learning styles. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks, you know, they read all the time and some folks, Sarah over here has a, has an iPad with words on it. Um, I can read on my phone. Some folks like to hear when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was go to the museum of fine art in downtown Norfolk, Virginia on a bus and plug in a cassette player. You probably don't know what that is, but you know what a cassette (laughs) Okay. And I plugged that in. I would listen to, I think it was Alexander Scorby or some dude read the Bible. You know, with some earphones they provide. Okay, I'm there. sorry, Steve. You were just a nerd, though. I was a nerd. <laughs> okay, not, Lord have mercy. That is not the experience of most folks. Okay, <laughs> that, that was my, that, that, was, that was my, you know. What do but you I'm glad it? it touched you in that way. I had vivid memories of it, uh, you know, because I just felt like somebody loved me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I heard that through hearing the Bible in my ear. Uh, but I agree with Sarah. You know, we, got, we have to be careful that we don't judge people our people as pastors, we don't let them fall into a legalistic interpretation of what that looks and feels like. 
that help them embrace the love of the word in a way that works for them. And, uh, and I, I think ex- the rest will follow. I explained this to someone that came to me once about, um, you know, if you decide today that you're going to learn French, you don't go pick up Madame Bovary by right. Flaubert in French and just start reading it from cover to cover and expect to learn French. Um, the Bible, I think what a lot of folks don't understand is the Bible is not a book. Right. It is 66 books, I believe, if my numbers mm-hmm. are right, and Correct. the listeners can, can Google that and check. Um, but And there are different contexts. There are different times in history. They're speaking to a different people in a different place. Often when you read after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the Gospels, mm-hmm. after you, you read after that, it's a new church that's forming after the resurrection of Christ. So they're figuring out how to be church. So it's a completely different kind of uh, writing and the letters than it is in the other side of the church or the other side of the Bible. And so, again, I wouldn't tell somebody who is brand new at this, well, just go pick up a book on French and you'll you'll learn French. Mm-hmm. Instead, I would say, why don't you come to Bible study or why don't you listen to a podcast? Or nowadays we can watch so many wonderful sermons online, you know, and and know that that pastor who is preaching that sermon has been wrestling with that text at least all week, if not longer. Um, and what most folks try to do is they just try to read the, the Bible from beginning to end as if it were a normal book. I've done it. I've right. tried. Mm. But imagine if instead of doing that, you read one page seven times, like mm-hmm. every day for a week. You would have more understanding than reading seven pages. Um, and so that's my point with that is, is you know, and life is busy. Mm. Um, it can get really busy and to, and to hold yourself to that standard to read the Bible every day can be a lot. Um, but the truth is, is that we make time for what's important to us. Mm. And I think that if you are building community, um, you said you were married. So Mm -hmm. if you and your wife are sharing that Bible time together or, or you're in a Sunday school group or a small group or something like that, you're going you're gonna to make time for that. It's mm. going to be like this. It's so much more fun to talk about the Bible. Now, sure some introverts I know would love to sit on the bus with their headphones on and listen to the Bible. Um, I will just say don't listen to James Earl Jones' version of the Bible because it sounds like the actual voice of God, right? Come on now. Come <laughs> It'll on make now. you scared. It'll scare you. Or, yeah, Darth Vader. Yeah, Darth Vader reading the Bible. <laughs> Darth Vader reading the Bible. I kind of like Hunter's voice. I think he should record oh, the no, Bible. He's like that. that real. Um, you know, let me just also add um, – Different techniques, and y'all can Google that. I mean, I just Googled one so I can tell you the spelling without messing it up. Lectio Divina, I think mm-hmm. is a pronoun, L-E-C-T-I-O-D-I-V-I-N-A. And all that is is taking out a piece of scripture, a section, and reading it and picking out a phrase and reading it again, picking out a word. And and you can read how to do it out there, but um, it kind of it decompresses some of the the anxiety of interpretation and reading a long piece and takes a small parcel and let it soak into your bones and the Holy Spirit will usually bring something out and you get an aha moment and it's pretty holy so it's a really ancient tradition of how to read the Bible that takes minutes um I don't know, Sarah, have you, you, you've, I know you've experienced that as such an effective pastor. Is that your experience as well? No, I agree. And that's the other thing yeah. when we're talking to folks who are maybe new at religion or atheists, oh, we, we all think it's just me. Yeah. And what we can't count on, but we can't, well, what we can count on, but we can't see is that the Holy Spirit 
will come. Amen. Even if it's just a little mustard seed, if it's an aha, if you yeah. read that one page seven times, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell you a secret, y'all. I, uh, I uh, had some folks that were struggling with some really bad things that had happened to them, um, and they're friends of the church. And um, one of them uh, was a victim of some violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just struggling oh with my. the evil that's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my gosh, do I wish I could undo that pain for them. Do I wish I could take it away and just, you know, make it never happen? I mean, and there's no way I can fix it. Um, and so what I asked them to do um, after talking with them and praying with them and sending them texts over several weeks and checking in on them, I asked them if they would be willing to write 16 Valentine cards to 16 folks in our church. And I asked them to pick whatever scripture they wanted to encourage those 16 folks. They could write whatever scripture they wanted on the card, but they had to write it 16 times. <laughs> wow, yeah. And Brilliant. I, Brilliant. Yeah, that family, um, the mother, the father, and the daughter texted me afterwards and said, our Valentines are in the mail. And wow, what a what a tremendous experience that was. Because we couldn't undo the evil that had been done to them, but they could put out 16 acts of kindness in the world. Mm-hmm. And by using the scripture, the yeah. Holy Spirit touched them in that way, they had to look through it. They had to search. They had to find what was speaking to them. And the Holy Spirit led them to what was speaking to them because I let them choose from anywhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they touched somebody else with those cards. And who knows who will be touched. Those people will then touch somebody else. You know, that um, that song that we sang as kids, some of us, it was, it was just running through my mind, you know, that this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine cuz that's what you were doing. I'm holding were, up my finger listeners. Up, that's what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. You were you were you were allowing the Holy Spirit to shine light in their darkness. Mm-hmm. With a good pastoral piece of advice. So, wow, and it wasn't hard. Well, and it takes faith. I didn't yeah. know what would happen with that, right. but I knew that the Holy Spirit would show up somehow. Just a I lot just of didn't know how. Amen. Wow. Well, that's I think those are great tips and mm. I I mean, I think I might even do some yeah. of them. Um, I'm going to have a whole vocabulary <laughs> test, thanks to Steve. Unicorns. Um, well, Lectio. I have one other tip for you, too. I just heard from a lady yesterday, um, a great friend who's a, a horsewoman up in the country, and <gasps> she says she puts her devotion in the bathroom oh. on the back of the toilet. Okay. Yeah. And she says her cat knows it every morning. <laughs> That's her time with the Lord. So I feel, like, I feel like growing up, my mom had Jesus calling in the bathroom. <laughs> okay, Jesus. TMI. Yeah, we call it the library. We'll call it the okay. library. So make sure um, you have that in your library. Well, cool. Well, at this point, I want to open the floor to you guys to pitch any kind of ministry stuff you guys have going on um, in your church, anything you want people to know, if there's a way that someone could get involved um, to help with anything you guys have going on. I'll let Sarah, if you have anything going on at the moment. Yeah, well, if you want to join us um, for Bible study, uh, we are starting um, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. on Zoom, so you can join from anywhere. Uh, We're starting a study called um, Uncluttering the Soul, um, and it's based on the uh, five fruits of the Spirit, peace, joy, kindness, self-control, I think patience is one of them. I never remember all of them in order. Um, it's a it's a not a deep book. It's a book that's meant to renew and um, refresh us who have all been so tired. Um, and it's short pages and short chapters. Um, so if you want to join us, um, you can go to the Shiloh UMC Montpelier 
uh, Facebook page, and we'll have okay. information there. And so this will probably release in two weeks. Will you still be doing it? Yeah, we'll at be that doing point? it for nine okay. weeks. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Wow. Um, and almost every Tuesday night, we have on Zoom some sort of Bible th- study throughout the year. And so, um, before we started recording, you were talking with one of our colleagues about some mission that you guys were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what kind of mission do you guys have going well, on? Well, we've been going back to old school missions because of the pandemic. So, we're doing a canned food drive. Uh, the week of Holy Week mm-hmm. up in the Montpelier area. Um, and the all of the canned foods will go to Wheat, which is the Western Hanover Emergency Action Team. But we're hoping that we get so much to fill their shelves that then the rest will go to ACES, which is in Ashland. It's a, a to help feed people in Ashland. Oh, cool. So. What about you, Steve? Well, Hunter, um, that's such a great question as a, Director Connectional Ministries for the conference. We we really do resource um, the people of God in the Virginia Conference and the churches, um, many churches, many clergy with um, the vision and how we articulate that and live that out of the annual conference, which are which is that disciples of Jesus Christ are lifelong learners who influence others to serve. Lifelong learners who influence others to serve. So if you go on our website uh, for the conference, uh, www.va, like Virginia, V-A-U-M-C, like United Methodist Church, .org, you can explore on that website those three areas of learning, serving, and influencing. We have associate directors, which are incredible leaders, a great communication staff here at the United Methodist Conference Center in Glen Allen. And we work tirelessly to um, just bring those international, national, and Virginia and local church opportunities, like Sarah mentioned, across uh, the world, frankly, um, under the leadership of Bishop Sharma D. Lewis, um, who is an incredible uh, spirit-led leader in our midst. So, you know, I would just encourage you, we have so many things to offer, and mo- more often than not, we're going to point you to a local church. Well, I would add to that, um, yeah. the whole Richmond area, if you're in anywhere in the Richmond mm-hmm. area, but all the districts are collecting flood buckets. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And you can get more information about how to make a flood bucket at umcor.org, right. Um But yeah, anywhere you are, um, you can... Uh, put a flood bucket together, and that'll help a lot of the folks in the southern states yeah. who had burst pipes and all sorts of things mm-hmm. like that, and health kits mm-hmm. and things like that. So. Now, so now, because I want people from VA to listen to this, but if they're outside of the state, is that something that the Methodist Church as a whole typically does? Is the yes. flood buckets okay? Yeah, yeah, flood buckets and health kits. So health okay. kits are like personal hygiene kits, mm-hmm. um, and we make them all uniform so they store easily and they're given out um, in times of disaster and crisis. Because, um, you know, when you run out of the house with your children and your dog, you may forget to grab your toothbrush. Yeah, um, so those yeah. little things that we take for granted, we want to make sure that folks always have that. And it's a sign of love and care uh, for them. Um, so they're called health kits. And we can probably find more about that on VAUMC.org as well, about making ha- health kits and flood buckets and things. Can, like that. And one question that we're entertaining a lot um, the last few days and uh, the conference center here is um, how can we help the folks in Texas, mm-hmm. you know, as a church. So if you go on that serving link on our website, you'll find what we call an advanced special, which is Methodist language for 
a fund to which you can contribute that will distinctively go um, to um, folks in a certain area. And the nice thing about Methodist missions globally, when you give to UMCOR, United Methodist Committee on Relief, is that um, all the money, I can't be clear, all, A-L-L, the money goes toward the people. Mm-hmm. It does not go toward administration, salaries. Mm-hmm. That's handled in a whole nother way. So when you give to those funds, you know it's touching the lives of people directly. Awesome. Well, I just want to say thank you guys for being on. Um, And next week, if you listen to our podcast next week, we are going to be talking about ghosts, God's Mm. butt, and gnarly Christians. Oh, my. That sounds like a one to listen to. Thanks we'll for letting get me know. You, we'll get you your headphones and your podcast for the bus ride. Okay? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll upgrade you from that upgrade. tape deck. All right. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much you, for Hunter. being on, and uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next week. Yes, sir. Thank for you. For hearing us Bye next now. week. <laughs>